Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Well, welcome to the January 2nd edition of Political Rewind. If you're listening in real time, that is Happy New Year, everybody. It's uh, really great to uh, kick off 2019 with a brand new live show. Uh, As many of you who listen to us regularly know, uh, for the last week plus, we've uh, been uh, either on break or uh, uh, replayed a couple of shows that we've done in the past. We did our top 10 show. And by the way, I know some of you couldn't hear our top 10 show a week ago Monday. We had a technical problem, and it, it I think about a third or more of the show didn't end up airing, and for that we're very, very sorry. Um, but we'll do it again at the end of 2019, and it'll <laughs> all be fine. In any case, I hope you have all had a wonderful holiday and are set for what promises to be yet another really fascinating, exciting, uh, controversial, rowdy political year. Um, joining us today, Greg Bluestein, the uh, political lead political reporter for the AJC. Um, Happy New Year to you, Greg. Happy New Year. Rollicking is the way I kind of look Rollicking. at it. Rollicking. <laughs> Saw a great picture of you and your wife, man, dressed very fancily for a big New Year's Eve event. We had a wedding. We went to a dad's garage <laughs> show. We had a we had a blast. Well, welcome to uh, Rewind. Uh, Amy Steigerwald, Georgia State political science professor, is with us again. Hi, Amy. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me back. Uh, quick correction. Georgia State and UGA Law School. You uh, told us on the last show you were on that uh, Georgia State was now number one. What you've learned since then is? UGA is definitely number one. Okay. As my students always, as I tell my students, you're supposed to read the story, not just the headline. <laughs> Georgia State is ranked above UGA when it comes to best value, but UGA definitely I, dominates in U.S. News and I, World Report. I, I, we wanted to make a correction. You wanted to make that correction. But also, <laughs> I thought it was important today because Bulldog, the, the Bulldog mm-hmm. Nation, which Greg Bluestein certainly represents, is a little dejected today Perhaps. after the drubbing they took from Texas last night. We are not number yes. one in the Sugar Bowl rankings. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Leo Smith, a Republican strategist, former operative in the state Republican Party, back with us uh, for today's show. Hi, Leo. Pleasure to be here. Happy New Year, everyone. And and former congressman, Democratic congressman Buddy Darden served up there in Cobb County and north of 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 there for 12 years in Congress. Hi, buddy. Happy New Year. I'm just happy to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> and we're happy you're alive as well. Uh, Greg, let me start with a little breaking news. Uh, you were at an event this morning at which uh, Brian Kemp incoming governor, and Chris Carr, who, uh, of course, won his election for attorney general, uh, led a—it was an awareness event more than anything else, wasn't it, about how prevalent sex trafficking is in Atlanta, in Georgia. We've known that for quite a while, but the fact that they made a bigger—it was a relatively dramatic event. Tell us about the school buses and how they handled this. Yeah, there were 72 school buses that were—that basically composed a mile-long moving billboard uh, highlighting the dangers and the prevalence of sex trafficking in Georgia. Um, each school bus had a message saying this is 50 uh, sex trafficking victims in uh, this amounts to 50 sex trafficking victims in Georgia, and they cite a study saying there was as many as 3,000 or so sex trafficking victims that travel through Georgia every year. So what we heard from um, Chris Carr and Brian Kemp was the need for a some, some sort of anti-gang crackdown unit that they talked about on the campaign trail uh, that would also target sex trafficking. And we also heard from Chuck Evstration, a, a, a Decula Republican who's moving up through the ranks of House Republican leadership, uh, talking about uh, what he intends to propose this year, which includes um, new penalties on uh, sex sex trafficking offenders and also 
more coordination and more a more legal framework to help victims of sex trafficking get treated. Uh, Amy, you're nodding. I mean, Georgia, unfortunately, is a major center for sex trafficking. It definitely is. I mean, part of the reason is that we have Atlanta, Hartsville, Jackson Airport, right? So it's the busiest when it comes to people, and it's a good place to be able to move through, unfortunately, uh, those who are being sex trafficked, and it's sort of a huge issue. I mean, as a side point on that, one of the things that also needs to be addressed is uh, the Violence Against Women Act expired on uh, December, I think it was December 30th or December 31st, and so that also, you know, will be a big thing in being able to aid that, because there's funds in there that helps with the identification and stopping. Caught up, as were so much else, by the inability of Congress to reach with the president a deal on continuing uh, funding uh, into 2019. And, and, and this kind of segues into the whole issue that I think that we'll talk about later, I'm sure Donald Trump is speaking of when he speaks of this being a domestic security issue, that sex trafficking, sex trafficking uh, is going to be connected to border security, southern border security. I'm sure that that's going to be part of the language over the next few weeks. Bill, I'd like to ask Greg if district attorney from Cobb County Vic Reynolds was there today, and the reason I think that he probably would be is that he's been interested in these two areas, and in particular, there's a rumor going around that mm -hmm. he may well be the next head of the Georgia Bureau yep. of Investigation, mm. which I think would be a very good, good move for him. And I tend to believe that rumor, even though the, the camp campaign hasn't confirmed it yet, and, and Vic would only say he's he would be honored if he got that post, but he has also said that uh, it's, there's no done deal yet. But yeah, uh, Reynolds, Mr. Reynolds was there. He didn't speak at the podium along with the other elected officials, but he was definitely there. And um, as, as we're talking about, Vernon Keenan retired after decades of public service. Um, an interim is in place right now, but when Brian Kemp takes office January 14th, uh, we kind of expect Vic Reynolds to be one of his first appointments. Um, we should also point out that this uh, uh, event today uh, comes uh, just weeks before the Super Bowl, mm -hmm. and Georgia is terribly concerned about how the Super Bowl impacts on the sex trafficking trade, and uh, so th there's timing involved in that as well. Exactly. Uh, law enforcement authorities are worried about a spike in, yeah. in that crime over right. the Super Bowl, and so they're trying to use the event to heighten awareness about, about sex trafficking now. Okay, well, we just—well, you know what? Let's listen to just one of comments that uh, uh, Governor Luck Kemp made at this event. But Marty and I stand here today as parents of three teenage daughters who are also here as well. Because our state and this city of Atlanta has become a hub for human trafficking. Innocent children are simply being sold for sex. Evil people are committing evil deeds, all to turn a profit. Families are being ripped apart. And unfortunately, it's happening right here in our own backyard. All right, so we will watch as the session gets underway in just a couple of weeks uh, from now to see uh, what they, how they address sex trafficking with legislation. And also, buddy, we'll take a look at um, this notion that, that Carr and Kemp want to tie their promises about going after gangs in a bigger way to the sex trafficking uh, ring specifically. Also, it takes their attention away, uh, the public's attention away from another number of issues that they'll be, both be trying to avoid. I was talking with a friend of mine who was very close to Nathan Deal, and he was telling me about how now that the campaign was over, Brian Kemp has got to figure some way to start governing, and you govern from the middle, not from either fringe. And so this will give them an issue maybe that uh, will distract people away from uh, some of their preconceived notions about what uh, he'll be doing on other issues. So I think it's good for him to, to pick an issue like this. Chris Carr also, I think, um, fumbled the ball when he bragged over the fact that they were able to successfully win a case out in Texas uh, undermining the ACA, Americans um, for um, Affordable care, Obamacare. So, Obamacare. <laughs> so, uh, so consequently, I think it might be good for them to latch on something that uh, that they can be proud of, rather than they have to apologize for. All right, I'll give you the last word on this, Greg. Oh, well, look, I mean, uh, Governor-elect Kemp is going to need some early wins, and uh, very few lawmakers are going to vote against anything that would crack down on sex, uh, on sex trafficking offenders or help give treatment to people who are victimized by that crime. Uh, and this is one of those things he'll, he'll probably push aggressively for.
All right, uh, let's move on. Um, and I'm going to start with you again on this, Greg, because you uh, did you interviewed uh, DeBose Porter, mm -hmm. who has been the uh, chairman of the Georgia Democratic Party for, uh, gee, a long time now. I don't know how many years precisely to you. Since 2013. Remember, he is replaced— it been, Has it been only 2013? He replaced Mike Berlon, oh, who, is that's now, right. uh, who later on had to serve a, right. a prison sentence. Right. For... So DeBose, uh, newspaper publisher uh, from in, out in Dublin, Georgia— uh, got himself into a little bit of hot water with other Democrats back after the 2014 election when uh, Democrats really hoped that Michelle Nunn or Jason Carter might actually be breakthrough candidates in the U.S. Senate or in the governor's race. And there was a movement after that saying that uh, DeBose uh, was not the kind of guy who could mobilize the Democratic base, particularly African-Americans. Theron Johnson, Kasim Reed. Vincent uh, Fort. Vincent Fort all tried to uh, uh, push him out of the way. It didn't work. I remember, even <laughs> even Roy Barnes um, yeah. supported a, a rival to to DuBose Porter way back in 2013. So he had he had some enemies within the party, uh, but he firmly aligned himself behind the Abrams camp, especially after she won the nomination. And um, he's he, he looked back at his tenure and said, look, we lost in 14, but we came ever so close uh, as Democrats in 2018. Um, and he still firmly believes that, that, um, that Brian Kemp and his role as Secretary of State helped orchestrate uh, the... The, the 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 camp victory and went out with his exit interview essentially saying that Brian Kemp was a cheater. Slammed him. Well, you, you quote him as saying Brian Kemp is a morally corrupt man who knows he has to cheat to win. Woo. Well, there's a new most powerful. I think back in 2014, obviously, Kasim Reed uh, took issue with DeBose Porter's leadership. And then in 2014, Kasim Reed was probably the most uh, important Atlanta leader. And I would say right now, Stacey Abrams is the most important, um, especially black American and I would say Democrat leader, period, right now. So I think that the Democrats have a challenge to either have a candidate like Stacey Abrams run or to have a, a, a Democrat Party chair like Stacey Abrams, and I, I mean the racial politics that go with it. Let me say a, something good about DeBose Porter because— I don't he, think we said anything he, bad he about and I, him. He and I served in the Georgia General Assembly together back in the early 80s, and this man has stayed the course. He's uh, been up. He's been down. He ran against Tom Murphy one time and got slammed back, but he came back. He has stayed the course. He's been consistent, and one thing about him, he doesn't give up, and I'm so proud of of his heritage he'll leave behind, and he'll be going out with, I think, a very, very, very strong uh, degree of approval. But let me say that a lot of good people out there, and one of the people I like very much, I don't think he's going to run, but it would be Michael Owens, who's done an excellent job. Yeah, right Michael there. Michael up already in, said out word. County. Yeah, Michael already sent out word. And of course, you all hear him on this show with some regularity. He's already sent out an email that many of us received, and so obviously Democrats did, uh, saying, I'm flattered, I'm not going there. Amy, um, but, you know, as we move forward with this state Democratic Party, this, let's acknowledge immediately the chairman of a state party, Republican or Democratic, is real inside baseball. I mean, there are an awful lot of people out there who aren't going to spend a lot of time thinking about the race. But what we saw in this last um, uh, election is the Democratic Party here is really in a moment where it's figuring out that its future is not what its past has been in many ways. It is no longer a yellow dog Democratic Party. Stacey Abrams pointed the way to a very different future to the party. And so now the chairman's job is going to be a reflection of where the Democrats see themselves heading, yes? No, I think that's very true. And I think it's also that we think of it as inside baseball, but it's incredibly important because it's not for either party about the national level, but it's really about sort of the state and the local level. Like people don't realize if you want to see change, right, in the governorship, you've got to start with the people that are running for the county commission offices and for the state senate and for the state general assembly. And it works its way up mm -hmm. and you're not going to win 
win a statewide race unless you have right strong county uh, officials that are put out and the head of the party for the state has a lot to do with that. And I think it's keeping going forward, right? Stacey Abrams has set up an amazing ground game for the Democrats that has not existed statewide in a very long time. But you need someone that can keep that going. Is it fair to say, Greg, that Stacey Abrams will be able to essentially anoint the chair of the party, or is that an exaggeration of her power? I think it's fair. I mean, this is uh, Dubois party is still firmly aligned behind Stacey Abrams. Um, Jim Galloway, my colleague of the AJC, wrote a column saying that she essentially can be the queen maker going into 2020 if she decides not to run for Senate, uh, or if she decides to run for Senate, she'll still sort of control uh, the apparatus behind the party. And remember, uh, in a state with no statewide Democratic elected officials, it's a very important position financially and organizationally. Uh, DuBose Porter inherited a party that barely had enough money in the, in the coffers to buy a used car. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was a party that was really struggling financially and ended up with, through a coordinated campaign with Stacey Abrams, raising $20 million plus this campaign cycle, also expanded uh, to more places opened offices all over the state, competed in areas the Democrats had kind of left forgotten in past election cycles. Um, and so keeping that pressure up is going to be the task for whoever succeeds him. Yeah, by and, the way, and it's going to be a lot easier this time, Bill, because apparently the Democrats still have some money left over because they've been running ads, uh, broadcast TV, uh, slamming uh, the incoming governor. And as a ghost of Democratic past, mm-hmm. I can tell you that things are different now. And Stacey Abrams has earned the right to select the chairman of the party, and I think she is, in effect, the titular head of our party. And so if if this is what she wants to do, it's it's really up to her. And I think that she has redefined, she has redefined the uh, essence of what the Democratic Party is all about. But there is one difference that I, I would uh, differ with, with Amy here, and that is now our parties have become <laughs> nationalized. You cannot separate the governor of the state from the president of the United States. And so you're going to see more and more of that because as Georgia becomes one more sophisticated, two more democratic, and three, and three more in touch with modern trends, I think you're going to see a more unified party both at the state, national, yeah, and federal but, but level. I, but I thought the point that you made, which is still worth keeping in mind, is that you build your party from the lower ballot races up. Not that yes. they not that it's a matter of, you know, whether the national and state can be separated, but you build the party one step at a time. Exactly. And the idea also that, I mean, in order to even get candidates that are going to run for the Senate and are going to run for the president, they've got to come from somewhere, right? And a lot of that gets built through the state parties and then people moving from state assembly to Congress to potentially um, up to the presidency. And so that idea that there is a, there's a lot of ground up that happens. Well, a lot of good candidates appeared this time and a lot of them didn't win. And I think you'll see them taking on a new role in this upcoming election. If right. you look back at DuBose Porter's first big challenge for the 14th cycle, it was just recruiting a full slate. That's it was right. worries that Democrats wouldn't yeah. be able to fill out an entire ticket. Um, and he did that. Um, and and certainly in 18, there was a, even a stronger ticket for Democrats. Yeah. Yeah, and you're I, not going to see that done by the National Party, right? The National Party isn't going to come in and recruit people on the ground run to for pull insurance out that commissioner. ticket. Exactly. But you need people to run. And I think, you know, one of the things that was notable about this last election is there were, in fact, Democratic challengers in places where there haven't been Democratic challengers for decades. All right, so who's going to be the next chair? We keep hearing the name of Senator Nakima Williams. She certainly made an impact in her, you know, early tenure in the state Senate. Uh, She's been on this show. We wish, Nakima, you would come on more often. I hope you're listening. I know her husband listens regularly. (laughs) But go ahead, Greg. She seems to be a a name that's getting a lot of play. Yeah, she's the vice chair of the party, very close with with Stacey Abrams, very close with DuBose Porter, who essentially endorsed her in that exit interview. Um, Hasn't formally announced she's going to run yet, but has certainly sent signals that she she is. We all have, we have one um, formal announcement from uh, uh, Doug Blackman, who ran for uh, public service commissioner in a state senate seat. He's a Forsyth County businessman. Um, 
but uh, it's very likely that she's getting in, especially now that we know that Michael Owens has formally taken his name out of, of the running. Uh, well, it'll be interesting to see how Nakima Williams's arrest at the state capitol mm-hmm. this past session will impact the decision on that. And I see a lot of parallels, Greg, to um, um, Michael McNeely's run for chairman, uh, first vice president, uh, first vice chair of the Georgia GOP, um, African-American, former police officer and and he was not supported in in favor of a traditional establishment candidate for a Georgia chairman and John Watson, based on fundraising primarily as the main reason. Um, Nikema, I think that's going to be another big question about can she raise money like establishment traditional Georgia Republicans, I mean, Democrats have done. Um, by the way, I would think that her arrest, which happened at a demonstration in the rotunda of the Capitol during the special session, uh, may in fact be raise her profile in a positive way, Amy. I think oh, Democrats definitely. were oh, in, enraged by the way in which she was arrested, having not really been a part of the, uh, she says, part of that demonstration itself. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, you know, it doesn't seem to me that works against her. With the donor class, I think it may be different. Wow. I, think I, don't, I don't agree. I don't yeah. agree. I think the senators ought to be knocking themselves out the day they come into session to uh, get this charge <laughs> dropped and completely, completely wiped out because this is not only an, an embarrassment to uh, the people of Georgia, it's an embarrassment strictly to the Georgia legislature and specifically the Georgia Senate that one of their own members was standing by watching and all of a sudden she's whisked off to jail. And this is a sign of the party's um, uh, approach to this debate. After that arrest, several national outlets wrote stories about Nakima Williams and the party amplified them, sending it out to all of its donors. So I don't think they're worried about that at all. Okay. We, we talked a few minutes ago about uh, Greg... You kind of led us into a subject that I want to take a couple minutes to talk about. Um, as we talked about Democrats trying to uh, really build up the the gains they made in 2018, and they did make gains and won a congressional seat in the 6th District. Lucy McBath, we'll talk more about her in a while. Uh, they won how many new legislative seats? About 13 or something 13. like that. Um, what's interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, is Democrats have laid down a marker Uh, Brian Kemp has said, I want to work with everybody. I want to chart a course that accomplishes meaningful uh, 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 things for the state of Georgia. I don't want to get caught up in the, you know, the hot button issues necessarily. Democrats are not ready to say, okay, we're going to do our best to work with you. Can we let's listen to a digital ad which the Democrats just put up about Uh, the new governor-elect. A new year is right around the corner, but for Brian Kemp, it's the same old story. Well, I am involved in a lawsuit. Those shady loans that haunted him during the election? Yeah, they still haven't been paid. That's right, he hasn't made a single payment. Kemp is liable for $600,000 in loans at the end of this month. Will he pay them, or will he pad his pockets with free money? People across Georgia are working hard and paying their bills. Why can't our next governor pay his? Brian Kemp, he makes promises he doesn't keep. All right, I'll start with you, but I want to go all the way around the table on this. Greg Bluestein has the 2022 governor's race just started. What is the point of this spot now? It started the day after Abrams' non-concession speech. I mean, uh, Congressman Darden was talking about how Stacey Abrams is the titular head of the Democratic Party, and this just proved this is amplifying, echoing the message she sent throughout the campaign. It's also showing a new edge for the state Democratic Party we didn't see after Governor Deal's election, re-election victory. I mean, they're, they're remaining on the offensive, and this is likely just to ratchet up. All right, but, okay, so... Amy, I don't know that you've had a chance to hear this until just now, so I'm sort of springing this on you. But I'm trying to understand what the pragmatic value of a commercial like this is right now. Granted, it's digital; it's not out there on television. Is it? Do you, what, what would you? We're speculating. Is mm-hmm. it a fundraising uh, ploy of some sort? Is it a shot across the bow, telling Republicans we're not going to make your life easy uh, when the legislature? I'm not quite sure I understand this spot. Um, I think it's probably all of those things. I think it's actually Congressman Darden's point that 
the state and the national parties are intrinsically linked. And so in many ways, right, they're pushing forward this sort of complaint against Kemp and highlighting sort of ethical issues, which do sort of mirror similar things that are going on um, up at the national level. Um, I think it is also the realization that there is a Senate election coming in two years and it starts now. Fundraising starts now, keeping the party up and that it is a real place for there to be attention is given. And I think from the state party's view, they want the national party to recognize that there is, in fact, um, that it's going to be a real race, that they should, in fact, take seriously and pump money into that race. All right. Leo, if if Democrats right now are saying Brian Kemp had better. Buddy's already said it on this show. You govern from the middle. You have to be pragmatic in how you govern. Uh, If Democrats were already saying, gee, we hope he rejects the, you know, right wing uh, uh, campaign rhetoric and governs from the middle, don't they have to meet him halfway? I would say that was an ad of hypocrisy. Absolutely. And and, And it saddens me greatly because if the Democrats are truly concerned about good policy being made in Georgia, about people being helped with pocketbook politics issues, um, if they're concerned about the economy, if they're concerned about prison reform, school choice, and those sorts of things, this ad had nothing to do with that. What am I missing, buddy? It doesn't sadden me at all. What it does, (laughs) it's it's a shot across the bow, and I adopt everything that Amy has said because they need to know, and, and the Republicans need to know, that the Democrats are not going to roll over and play dead anymore. Now, they had to do it before they had these additional 15 something House members and more senators to come in. But now the Democrats want to be a part of and they want to see at the table and they want to be consulted. And they're not going to roll over and play dead. But what's ironic about it is that that look, I mean, I think it is interesting to see a more aggressive Democratic Mm -hmm. state party. No question. I get that. But I do think it's interesting, Greg, given the, the Democrats just put forward a gubernatorial candidate who prided herself on how well she worked across the aisle. I mean, she's still is a liberal Democrat in many ways and ran on that on, on that uh, philosophy. But but she liked working across the aisle. But this is it's interesting to see this aggressiveness but, on but, the Democrats. But also remember, part. this sort of does echo Stacey Abrams approach to the general election because she uh, yes. she only started attacking Brian Kemp near the very end. She let right. the party do a lot of that right. uh, talking for her throughout most of the general election yeah. campaign. Um, and so she's continuing to do that. She has sent out fundraising emails and other things, continuing to call Brian Kemp the the, the architect of voter suppression and really yep. keeping up her line of yep. attack as well, though. Yep. You know, last I, word before the break, Leo. People keep asking why why you see the irony of, you know, you'll have 12 percent of, of folks voting for the new governor of Florida, African-American folks. You hear uh, a percentage of folks voting for Brian Kemp in spite of that kind of language. Well, this is why, because Democrats are not focusing on policy. They're not focusing on making a difference in people's lives. And those people who want to see real policy done that impacts them in the pocketbook and the home, those people will, will give the Republicans a chance. I will. Let's see what kind of legislative session we have, Leo, before we make make a broad, bold comments about whether Democrats will work for pragmatic and, 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 and important legislation. We'll see how it all plays out. And you'll be coming back to share your feelings about that with us. Let's get a break in. We'll be right back. On the next Fresh Air... Punishment without crime. How our misdemeanor system traps the innocent and makes America more unequal. We'll talk with law professor and former assistant federal public defender Alexandra Natapoff. Her new book is about how the misdemeanor system disproportionately punishes the poor and working class. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Hey, this is David Green, host of Morning Edition. I'm here to talk with you about that poking feeling, the one that keeps reminding you to support public radio. You can support the programs you love by donating your used vehicle. That old car or truck could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station. All you have to do is call, and you might even receive a tax deduction. Go to gpb.org cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR and thanks. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, Buddy Darden, Amy Steigerwald, Leo Smith, and Greg Bluestein are with us. Uh, Greg, uh, yesterday, uh, Democratic Congressman Hank Johnson went to Friendship Baptist Church 
and uh, was allowed a few minutes in the pulpit to make remarks. And here's just a little of what he said. He rode a wave of nationalism and anti-Semitism to power, replace anti-Semitism with all Latinos crossing our borders, our rapists, drug dealers, and murderers. Does that sound familiar? His aim was to unite the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Germanic, Aryan people against the Jews, the Italians, the Polish, anybody else. Hitler did not start the Nazi party, but he took over the party with charisma and leadership. The Nazis and Hitler became synonymous. Much like Hitler took over the Nazi party, Trump has taken over the Republican Party. It's now known as the Trump Republican Party. Democratic Congressman Hank Johnson uh, making a uh, comparison of Adolf Hitler to Donald Trump. Amy, what do you think as you hear that? Um, you know, as someone with a pretty deep history in political history, the historical comparisons are there's some closeness to them, right? They both ran as populists. They both ran as nationalists using sort of those particular terms. Uh, the there There is, I mean, as a lot of people have pointed out, uh, Kevin Cruz in particular, the use of the phrase America first also echoes sort of early uh, similar fascist movements that were in uh, the 1920s and 1910s in the United States. And so some of the issue is the concern of sort of where does it go? Now, of course, we haven't seen any indications, right, obviously, of concentration camps or genocide or things like that, but the sort of taking over the movement and that the the rhetoric of ostracization and us versus them, there are a lot of very similar parallels. So but let me point out one one good positive sign, and that was the article that Bit Romney wrote in the Washington Post a couple of days ago, in which he says, I'm going to take on the president of the United States. When he's right, I'm going to vote with him. When he's wrong, I'm going to call him out. And I think the Republican Party is going to save itself by rejecting this type of rhetoric that uh, well, Donald Trump day, has put to, out to, and, they, and staying forward, they can staying forward by coming back to its roots as a party of Lincoln. To this date, the Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt back in 19 and 2016, they have not denounced Trump, but they have denounced Hank Johnson, who called Jews termites. And, and, and this is a cover by Hank to try and get over this horrible attitude he has towards Jews. So let's yeah, yeah. They, there, there, there has been uh, ADL has spoken out, has been critical at times of Hank Johnson, um, or, or at least once, I should say that. Uh, they have certainly criticized Trump. Uh, it, it, they have not painted a broad picture of Trump. Uh, Hank Johnson did. That's the question here. Yeah, and the general rule in politics has been that he who is the first to bring Hitler into the dialogue <laughs> yeah. loses. But we, we, called, um, we called Congressman Johnson after the speech on Tuesday, and he defended the use as a historic example. He said he wanted to make the point that our <laughs> democracy is under severe threat, that freedom is threatened, and if we're not vigilant, we can also allow tyranny to set in. So he is not backing off his comments in a way that David Perdue, when he— um, he compared uh, 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 protesters who were who were advocating against uh, Brett Kavanaugh's appointment to to brown shirts and yeah. Nazi Germany. He ended up apologizing for that yeah. last fall. Yeah, I just I just not sure. You know, this isn't a matter of Democrat versus Republican politics. This is one congressman speaking out. I doubt that. Greg, there are a lot of Democratic members of Congress, his colleagues, or for that matter, Democrats out there in the world who would say to Hank Johnson, thank you for comparing Donald Trump to Adolf Hitler. It's one of the slippery slope <laughs> arguments that also seems to diminish what Nazi Germany perpetrated on not just the Jewish people, Absolutely. but the millions of other people who, who perished under their regime. He becomes mm -hmm. a senior member of the House Judiciary Committee. It's going to be interesting to see what he does in that role, by the way. That's what I was about to say. At the same time, while he might decry some of the things that are happening in the country, there's reason of optimism because the Democratic Party has overwhelmingly taken over the House of Representatives with the biggest loss of a Republican seat since the uh, Great Depression. So there's every reason to be optimistic and 
we need we need to look at the things that we're doing right as well as the things that we're doing wrong. Absolutely. Hank gets a little carried away sometimes with his with his rhetoric, and I he's a he's a good man, but every now and then he uh, kind of gets off track. Yeah, he's a good man, just like some people saying some of them are racist, and he says Jews are termites. So. Oh, all right, Leo. Uh, Leo, you made your point. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, let's move on. By Speaking the way, of, uh, he defeated your candidate, uh, Joe Prophet, by about 78%. Yeah, that's right. True. We do need to point out, that's right. That but you, he was only my candidate for three weeks. Okay, well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, Greg, I don't know about you, but uh, we, we should point out that Leo Representa was consultant for uh, in that race for the Republican candidate. I always used to think that the way you knew when somebody was going to lose was a few days before the election when uh, people working for that campaign, a consultant, an ad buyer, whatever, called you up and said, you know, I've been telling them to take my advice and they're just not listening to me. At that moment, you sort of realized they were bailing at the last minute. Also, when the district <laughs> is what, 85% uh, Clinton yeah, seats? Yeah, but, but I want to say, when you have leaders or uh, people like Hank Johnson there who don't, who, I mean, believe right, me. Well, let's not, not talk. Right, Look, we right, don't need to talk anymore. Right. I, mean, I, I, I agree, but I'm just saying that's a compelling reason to okay, find a candidate. Okay, 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 I hear you. Thank you, Leo. Uh, Amy, speaking of the new Congress, the 116th Congress is sworn in tomorrow, and it's going to be an extraordinary beginning. Obviously, Democrats take control of the House, but let's just, there are 100 new elected House members, right? 66 Democrats, 44 Republicans, um, 23 people of color, the way the New York Times described them, in the freshman class. Many of those represent white districts. We could go down the line on this. Um, we have our first Muslim woman who will come to the floor uh, wearing a hijab, which we've never seen before. And in which, fact, they just changed the House I was just rules to say, allow that. Tell us a little bit about what to expect. This is an area of your expertise. It is a sort of phenomenal change, especially if you look at just sort of descriptively what the Congress is going to look like. It's going to be the most diverse Ever. Um, it is in all told, there's going to be 23% women. Uh, the percentage of minorities is the largest we've ever seen. Um, we're going to see there's going to be uh, 55 African Americans, 44 Hispanics, 15 Asians, eight, uh, four Native Americans, and eight people in the House that uh, identify as LGBTQ. Uh, in the Senate, you've got 25 women, nine minorities. And so, descriptively, in that sense, it definitely is getting much more close to sort of mirroring the demographics, though I should say when it comes to uh, women, it's still a little bit off, but particularly with, I think, minority groups, it's getting a little bit closer to mirroring the demographics. I think what is also going to be interesting, though, is almost all of that change happened on one side of the aisle. Um, the incoming class for the Democrats is 57 percent female. It is there are only two new freshman Republican women. Uh, in fact, the total of women that are going to be serving on the Republican side in Congress dropped from 23 to 13. So it's a drop of 43 percent. There's only one non-white Republican freshman that's entering, as opposed to 34 percent of the new Democratic class. Um, and overall, almost all of that. So the, the new Republican caucus is actually 90 percent white male. And I think that that's also going to be really interesting to see where that goes forward, because, again, as we're talking about these sort of national issues and changing demographics of not just in particular places and in Georgia, but the broader uh, United States, it's going to be really interesting to see how that is, because what we have is the most uh, diverse caucus, but also it's only on one side. Yeah. And that's going to be really interesting. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of encouraged by that in a way, though, because I think it's about time the Democrats make some some progress on diversifying their side, since diversity is a big banner of theirs. And I'm excited about people like Ayanna Presley, who is mm -hmm. more concerned about U.S. domestic issues than she is about global issues, which I think a lot of the older um, congressmen and women at, at, of Democrats are just been concerned about global issues at the expense of, of local politics that help uh, African-Americans especially. All right, buddy, first of all, just give us a scene setter. What I, you've been up there, you know what the first day of a session is like. I covered a lot of opening sessions. 
it's a remarkable day. It's it's coming back to school after summer vacation. <laughs> it's filled with hope and optimism. Uh, young people uh, taking their place, especially in this Congress. What's it all like up there at this time of year? It's an exciting time, and tomorrow at 12 noon, the clerk of the House will come onto the floor amid all these people and families and husbands and wives and children uh, out there, all supporters from everywhere. It'll be total pandemonium, and the clerk of the House, Linda Haas, will call the group to order, and they will call the roll of the newly elected 435 members. Uh, at which time, rather than announcing present, they will call out the name of the person that they are voting for as speaker, yep. whether it's uh, Nancy Pelosi or uh, whether it's Kevin McCarthy or anyone else that they uh, want to call out. And then at the end, end of that, then the person elected speaker will be called forward. And that person, assuming that it's Nancy Pelosi in this case, and it's I've, I've been to about six openings of Congress, and it's always more exciting when the, when the party changes one way or, or another. But it's a very civil situation in which the outgoing speaker presents the gavel to the incoming yep. speaker. Now, I'm not sure if it's going to be McCarthy or whether it's going to be Ryan presenting it to uh, Nancy Pelosi tomorrow, at, wh at which time then... Uh, they will persuade. Uh, they will. They will go forward and uh, announce the new officers of the house. There'll be a new clerk. There'll be a new uh, charge at arms. There'll be a new this. And so the house will then be organized by the majority and the minority. You know, if it's Paul Ryan, uh, Greg, uh, who gives up the gavel, the gavel's not is kind of heavy, but not that heavy. But he will also transfer to Nancy Pelosi the Sisyphean rock mm -hmm. that he has that been carrying correct. on his shoulder, trying to be a speaker in the era of Donald Trump. Of, of, which is a, a hard <laughs> challenge under any president, herding cats, but I guess it's more like herding feral cats under, <laughs> right now. Yeah, it's, it's going to be very difficult. Um, but, but also... The, the, the Sisyphean challenge of trying to break the uh, the government shutdown right yeah. now when we're still not getting any clear signal from the White House or from the Senate about what will happen. Um, we, we understand that Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats already have a have some sort of plan to reopen government immediately, but we don't know whether or not the Senate and White House will well, sign on. I want to ask the congressman a question. Do you think after 12 o'clock tomorrow and that vote takes place to, I think, make uh, Nancy Pelosi House Speaker, does she then, now that she's gotten that banner, does she now sort of acquiesce back to maybe being willing to negotiate with Trump? I think what she will do is represent the interests of the United States of America and her caucus. And I think to the extent that it is, she believes it is the best national interest, I think that she will, she will do that. Uh, of course, uh, let's, let's put it this way. We have three co-equal branches of government. And apparently the president of the United States, uh, as I've said many times on this program itself, doesn't understand or realize that these branches are co-equal and that they each are interdependent on one another to make our system work. I'm sorry, buddy. Finish that sentence because then we got to get to a break. I apologize. I, I just, I just <clears throat> want to say I think that Nancy Pelosi will, as she always has, will act in the what's the best interest of the United States of America. All right, let's do this. You talked about the shutdown. We want to go there in just a minute. And also, I want to ask you all, where do we think Lucy McBath, our new Georgia Democratic Congresswoman, is going to make her mark? This is Political Rewind. Who are the people whose names you see at the end of a movie or a TV show? I'm Kalina Bowler. I've worked for years behind the scenes in Georgia's booming film industry. In my GPB podcast, I meet the people who help bring art to life, from actors to stuntmen to camera operators. Join me for the credits. Subscribe at thecreditspodcast.com. Um, Greg Bluestein, let's take the second thing I said before the break first, because there's not much to say about this. Lucy McBath will be sworn in uh, as a Democratic member of Congress tomorrow, 6th District. 
um, beating Karen Handel up there. We know very little. We know she believes strongly in gun safety laws, given the tragic loss of her son. We know that she believes that pre-existing conditions, which were a big part of her campaign, as it was for many Democrats. But we really know very little. I don't even think we know what committees she hopes to be on. Yeah, we're assuming she wants to be on House Judiciary, and Congressman uh, Darden can enlighten us about what that means, too. But um, we've heard very, we've heard relatively little from her since her election victory, and she's been gearing up to take office. She knows she'll be one of the more uh, vulnerable uh, uh, incumbents, Democrats. Uh, Republicans have, have kind of painted a target around her. And Karen Handel might well run for, for that seat again. Um, and if she doesn't, there's a long list of, of Republicans who are already forming up behind her, even if she does run, perhaps. Um, so she's in a very kind of precarious spot right now. She has been somewhat communicative with all of the people who supported her. I've heard from her four or five times. And uh, in fact, I'm in the process of getting in touch with her right now about an issue. But one day before the general election, Gerald Nadler, who is the ranking minority member of the Judiciary Committee, came down to campaign for her. Mm. And uh, so I think it's pretty evident that he wants her on his, his committee and he'll be the new chair. We don't know, though. We just don't know why she has uh, decided to remain uh, uh, so quite so quiet. Um, so we have to see where she's going to find her voice, Amy. Yeah, I think that's true. I'm also not sure that it's all that surprising. I mean, there's not a lot in the interim, right? You're trying to hire staff. You're trying to figure out who's going to possibly go on from the campaign and be in D.C. You're trying to find a place to live. You're trying to, you know, move into your office and figure out what's going on. And so I imagine we'll start to hear more, especially once she takes office and also knows, for example, what committee she's going to be on and sort of what that path is going to look like. All right. Buddy's right. We've uh, been getting uh, emails. She's sending out lots of emails um, to her supporters and, and mostly saying, please help continue to support me mm -hmm. as I as I get going here uh, with campaign contributions. All right. Let's real, real I, quick. I just want to say Amy is absolutely right, because it's so such a daunting task. All of a sudden you're moving to Washington. And I don't think she really expected to be moving to Washington. <laughs> uh, secondly, you've got to hire staff. Uh, third, you've got to She's been to a uh, new member school. You've mm -hmm. got to learn about what you're doing, and this is no time to be out there uh, conducting press conferences and getting asked questions about things that you really don't have any answer to at the present time. She'll have plenty right. of time. All right, yeah, uh, we'll watch for that. All right, uh, the shutdown. In about nine minutes from now, President Trump is expected to receive the leadership, Democrats and Republicans of the House, including the incoming speaker, Nancy Pelosi, we're told this is not a negotiating session, Amy. This is a, uh, a, a, a an update. This is the president saying, let me update you on where I stand on this. And frankly, we don't have a clue at this point where well, the president really stands. And even more so, my understanding is it's not about the shutdown. It is a briefing that's supposed to be also in part led by DHS Secretary Nielsen um, about border security. They are doing it uh, in the Situation Room. So not only will there not be press, it will be like that's closed and that's yes, allowed well, them to be classified. Well, after the last one in well, the Oval Office. <laughs> so, so I would say that we do yeah. know what he's, what he's, what he's going to yeah. speak about and how he feels about negotiation on this. And that is, is that he's not going to sign it unless he finds a way to get his $5 billion for border security, including a, a wall or the metaphor of a wall. Remember, that last meeting where he met with Democratic leaders is when he said he'd proudly own the consequences of a shutdown if he didn't get that money. So uh, if, his if his tune changes dramatically since then, there will also be consequences. All right, we don't know. D Democrats do have a plan. Uh, they are going to split the remaining uh, departments that have not yet had their funding extended into two groups. They're going to they're, they are going to bring to the floor, presumably when Pelosi's elected speaker, uh, a plan to fund through the end of the fiscal year, buddy, all of the departments of government with the exception of Homeland Security. They'll extend funding on Homeland Security into February, the idea being they want to isolate President Trump and his demand for a wall from the rest of government spending. How do you think that works as a practical tactic? I think it's a great tactic, and here's why. You see, the Department of Justice is shut down. The Department of Agriculture is shut down. 
Uh, the yeah, farmers are not getting their uh, their loans right now because of that. A- absolutely. TSA, they are working now uh, on a hope that they'll be paid. So the entire s- system of government, uh, other than Homeland Security, needs to go forward while they work this out. And so Trump has already said that he owns this shutdown, but somehow it's going to be hard for him to lie his way out of this one because he's already gone on the record saying what, he, what he's going to do. But on the, other, on the other hand, there are a lot of dedicated, hardworking people who really aren't a part of, of this, and they need to get on back to work, and we need the essential uh, elements and functions of government to go forward. And I think he probably has enough advisors who will probably come around and say, that some way you've got to get this thing going back and save a little face. Well, I would say, speaking back to my question to you about Pelosi and what she'll do after she gets elected, at this point, I think um, Pelosi has to at least seem like she's going to be totally oppositional to Trump. But once she's won that seat and once she's speaker, can't she now say that I'm willing to compromise? Because the, the Republicans have presented a bill to fund the government. The Democrats haven't. Well, Amy, I, I'm not quite sure how Pelosi can turn her back on the Democrats who will have elected her to the speakership. Uh, and well, turn- I think there's two things to think about. I mean, number one is to say that she is, in fact, opening right the room for negotiation by saying, look, let's have a debate over the wall funding. Right. We'll put that separate, but at least allow government to stay open. But that one right, would only be a continuing resolution until February the 8th. Um, I think the other side of it, which is sort of makes it difficult, is that. The Senate also did pass all seven of the bills under um, a continuing resolution, and they did so by voice vote. So that means that it was 100 to zero. There was no one that uh, broke opposition. And so, right, what she's really saying is we're going to take up the bill that the Senate sent over to us and we're going to vote on that. And Pelosi has signaled she's willing to play to play ball in a, in a degree. Uh, she said that uh, there will be two votes on Thursday, yeah. one that will fund most of the government through September 30th uh, and the Department of Homeland Security February 8th, and it would devote $1.3 billion for border security measures. So yeah. there's, Greg, as you there's, point a, out, there's a measure there. As yeah. you're pointing out from her plan already in place, this is not her first rodeo. She's been here before, and she knows how government works. She understands the legislative process, and she understands what's going on and is involved in it. So personally, I think that uh, Trump is lucky to have somebody in the speakership who actually understands uh, what's going on here. But let me tell you something I heard this morning, and I've checked it out as verifiable. We talk all this stuff about border security and border walls. The overwhelming majority, including about 90 percent of the people in this country illegally, come in here legally and just overstay the business. And there is one other part, which is that there is money that has been, that was allocated right in the budget. It actually hasn't been spent yet. And there's been a couple of requests made by, right, the Republican House, right, asking, well, A, when are you going to actually spend the money and what are you going to use it for? There's also a report that was supposed to be given back to the House uh, explicating what they were going to use the money for. And that hasn't been turned over. And so that's actually why you've seen, even on the Republican side, a lot of concerns about sort of additional funding because they haven't actually spent the money that there was, nor given the plan that they're required to by law. Leo, I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to have the last word because we're running out of time. Sometimes it's important to get, Georgia would know this, UGA football, to get a first down. (laughs) It's important to get first downs. (laughs) And for American citizens, especially Republicans, we look at the southern border as a place that we can get a first down on the issue. Whereas people who immigrate here by airplane, um, that's a harder issue to tackle and is not as it is not as controversial. All right. Thank you. We are out of time. I would add to that the question that we're going to all look at over the next couple of days and maybe the next couple of weeks if this lingers on is whether securing the southern border with a Trump wall is the best way to get that first down. Um, So we'll have that to talk about in the days ahead, of course. Uh, Buddy Darden, Amy Steigerwald, Leo Smith, Greg Bluestein, thanks for starting us off in such a great way on our first day back on the air in 2019. We'll be back on Friday at 2 o'clock with a brand new show. And I think Friday night at 7 is our first night of being on television. Isn't that right, uh, Tom Faust? I think so. All right, we'll see you all on Friday at 2.